Go ahead and be seated. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Listen very carefully as I read God's word to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. Pray with me again. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We ask that you would give me grace as I seek to expound it. Uh, Would you please also give grace to those of us who are hearers, including myself, uh, that we might uh, be moved to a greater love for you, a greater uh, desire to honor you in the way that we live and in what we trust. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, I don't know if you've ever had something like this happen to you, but I'm, it did to me, and I'm going to tell you a, a moment about it. But have you ever had this happen where you did something, let's say when your parents were not around, and it was really wrong, and you knew it was wrong. And you did something really wrong. Maybe you took something that didn't belong to you. Maybe you disobeyed your parents. You ate some cookies that your mother said, not, you're not gonna, you can't eat those cookies. But you snuck in and got, got them anyway and ate them. Or maybe it was told a lie to somebody. But you knew I did something really wrong. And when you did that, you felt really condemned inside. You knew it was wrong and you felt bad and you realized that really was, God was offended by what I did. He saw what I did and he was offended. I had that happen to me uh, more than once. But there was one occasion in particular that stands out in my mind when I was a a boy. I was older than most of you uh, little ones. I was a teenager, but I did something, and I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I did something that was really bad. It was illegal. And it was also, uh, I had been lying to my parents, and my parents found out about it. Um, And before I told them, I remember feeling terrible inside. Because I knew I'd been caught, I knew they knew what had happened, what I'd done. And I just felt awful inside. 
And I was worried when I went to my parents, especially my dad, what his response was going to be. Because I knew I was condemned inside because I had done something that I knew was wrong and I was worried that my dad was going to condemn me. And my mom, but especially my dad. Guess what? It didn't happen. My dad didn't say a word. Other than that, he loved me. And then he hugged me. And it was really neat to know that I wasn't condemned for what I'd done. This text says essentially that about you and me. Last time we were in this text, um, uh, in, in Romans, Romans chapter 7, we learned some things. We learned that as a Christian, in the last passage, the end of the chapter, we learned that as a Christian, that your foremost long-term desire and mine as Christians is going to be to do the good. We'll just call it the good, good things that God wants us to do. Our foremost or principal desire as Christians is to do the good that God requires of us in his law, that is, in his, his will. We're to do God's will. And that's our foremost long-term desire that we have as Christians. But we also learned in the last passage we were looking at at the end of the chapter 7 that our foremost long-term challenge as Christians will be to do the good that God requires of us in his law. It's the foremost desire and it's the foremost challenge for us as Christians who are sinners saved by grace. And the reason it's <clears throat> the foremost uh, long-term challenge as well as desire is because the law of God and the law of sin that Paul speaks of in, in verse 2 of chapter 8 that we're looking at, those two laws, if you will, are at war within each one of us. And our hearts are the battlefield of those two principles or laws that are operating within us as Christians. Each of those laws or principles is competing for our attention and our loyalty the law of God and the law of sin. And each of those principles or laws is urging us to pursue the path that that particular law is advocating. And our heart is the battleground. And I pointed out last time we were in Romans that all too often, sadly, to our sorrow and disgust, we find ourselves giving in to the law of sin, which causes us to do, when we give in to the law of sin, it causes us to do the things that our innermost self, the core of who we are, really doesn't want to do, but we end up doing it anyway. Our 
our inmost self, again, the core of who we are, truly desires, as new creatures in Christ, it truly desires to glorify God through obedience to his revealed will. But the old man's continuing presence within us and influence over us regularly impedes the implementation of our new nature's desire to walk in holiness in a way that honors and pleases God. And the result of this tug of war is that even as Christians who are indwelt by the God the Holy Spirit, which we are for Christians, it is impossible for us to even come close to fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's will, his holy law, one and the same thing. At least I'm using them interchangeably here. So let me ask you something. Does this last statement that I just made, that it's impossible for us to come even close to fulfilling God's, the righteous requirements of God's holy law, does that statement make you the least bit uncomfortable? It should. In light of who God is and what he is like, it should make you uncomfortable. After all, the God to whom you will one day answer all of us will, that God dwells in unapproachable light, which is a manifestation of his blinding holiness and moral purity. The Bible describes God repeatedly as a consuming fire. And that was that consuming fire who struck Uzzah dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant when he was trying to help keep the Ark from falling on the ground. His motives appeared to be good. And yet God struck him dead for his irreverence. This is the same God who says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And who also says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. He has become, rather, guilty of all. And you and I don't even come close perfectly keeping God's law as Christians. That hymn that we sung a few moments ago, No Not Despairingly Come I to Thee, made that very point. That we don't come even close. Well, this brings me to the two points that this text very eloquently makes, which I'm going to summarize in this way. Two points. First point is this. If you are not spiritually united to Jesus Christ, you are under the condemnation of God's holy law right now. But then secondly, this text, <clears throat> thankfully, makes a second point, and that is this. If you are spiritually united to Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the condemnation of God's holy law law. Those are the two points that we're going to be looking at in the next few minutes. First of all, if you are not spiritually united to Jesus Christ, you are under the condemnation of God's law. We are spiritually united, by the way, and I'll repeat this later, but by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to reconcile us to God, 
to, to cover our sins from his sight, and we are trusting in him also to be the Lord of our life, to be the master uh, of our lives. Uh, we receive him because he is Savior and Lord. We receive him when we receive him savingly as Savior and Lord. And trust in him alone, not our baptism or church membership or anything else, uh, uh, to make us right with God and to give us um, a heavenly home. So, if you're not trusting in Jesus that way, you're not spiritually united to him, and you are under condemnation from God. You and every other descendant of Adam are under obligation, all of us, begin life in this world, actually in our mother's womb, we begin life under obligation, divine obligation, to perfectly keep God's law, that is his will, and we are under that obligation, under the terms of the arrangement which God made with Adam in the garden before the fall. It's regularly referred to by those of us in Presbyterian and Reformed circles as the covenant of works. Let me read the, that covenant to you. The language of it, it's found in one verse, in Genesis chapter 2, verse, excuse me, two verses. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, I'll start in verse 15. Then the Lord God took, Adam, uh, took the man uh, and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord commanded, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat eat. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. That is a covenant. That is an arrangement by which man was to relate to God at that point in time in human history, at the beginning of human history. And that statement there in Genesis chapter 2 that I just read has all the hallmarks of a covenant as de described uh, as co covenant, various other covenants that are found in the uh, Bible. Uh, this covenant has all the hallmarks of it. I won't bother to uh, go into the details of uh, what covenants look like right now, but just suffice it to say, it uh, walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. Even though it doesn't say covenant of works there. And this, by the way, is confirmed that it, that arrangement in the garden was a covenant uh, is confirmed by Paul's multiple comparisons of that arrangement made with Adam in the garden right there in Genesis 2. The multiple comparisons that Paul makes with this, of this arrangement with the covenant of grace that was made with Christ as the second Adam. Paul refers to him as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And that arrangement was a gracious arrangement made with Christ and in, in him with all of us who are trusting in him. So it was clearly a covenant. And it's that covenant that put all of humanity under obligation to obey God. God gave one simple test of their obedience. Stay away from that tree or you will die. By implication, if you stay away from that tree, you will live forevermore in fellowship with me. That, of course, did not happen, uh, which is why we needed a second covenant, a gracious one, uh, which the Lord Jesus provided. Scripture speaks of various purposes of God's law uh, that we are obliged to keep uh, as human beings. 
First of all, the law, we are told in a number of places, but one of which is Romans 3, 21. I won't bother turning there right now. But the law, first of all, bears witness to the righteousness of God. It tells us about God's moral character. God is perfectly righteous, uh, and the law bears witness to that fact because the law is the embodiment of God's own righteous character. So the law bears witness to the fact that God is a righteous and a holy God. Another purpose that is set forth in Scripture of God's law is that it sets forth the standard that all of his rational creatures, men and angels alike, are, to re, um, are required by him to measure up to. All of God's creatures need to be, uh, attain this standard of perfect holiness uh, they need, they're required to measure up to it. The angels are and humanity um, in our inception as a race was required to do so. And the law described, which was at that time in the garden, was written upon Adam's heart. And God could do nothing less than require absolute conformity to his own moral character from his image bearer. Uh, Adam and all of his descendants. And God did indeed require that Adam be holy as he himself is holy. And to require anything less uh, than moral perfection from uh, humanity would be God denying his own holiness, denying himself. God would cease to be God, which of course is impossible. So God couldn't but require moral perfection from his image bearers, and he did through his law which was at that point a stage in human history printed on uh, Adam's heart. It was later uh, um, inscripturated in, at Mount Sinai. And the third purpose for which God's law is given, according to Scripture, is the one that is brought out here in Romans chapter, or alluded to here in Romans chapter 8, and that is the law of God condemns all those who do not completely fully measure up to its perfect standard. Condemns. The law condemns. Now, when Adam was first given that commandment to obey by staying away from the tree, it represented obedience in all areas. It was a, it was a simple test that represented whether or not Adam was going to trust God and obey God in all areas on which God had communicated to him. Adam, of course, failed that test, and we have all experienced the consequences of his failure and our failure in him. Had we not all been conceived with the guilt of Adam's first sin, we would still ourselves be capable of keeping God's law as he requires, hypothetically, had we not been conceived with the guilt of Adam's first sin, which we were. By perfectly keeping God's law, had that situation uh, been the case, Adam hadn't sinned, we would then have earned God's approval and as a result, continued life with God. Had that been the case. And the reason we know this is Scripture says as much. Uh, one of those places, not the only place, but is Leviticus 18.5 where we read this. God speaks through Moses, says so, or to Israel through Moses, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live 
if he does them. That's the covenant of works right there. Articulated and held out as a hypothetical by, by the Lord through Moses in Leviticus 18. If you can keep them, you can earn, you can earn eternal life. Of course, it was an impossibility because of what had happened in the garden. But the point was, it was a hypothetical situation that man, Adam, could have had he continued to obey. The implication that we find in Scripture is that eventually that period of testing would have ended and Adam would have been confirmed in his righteousness and in life with God forevermore as well as all his posterity, us. But we know that isn't what happened, nor was it what God intended. And so Adam fell. And we were all conceived with that guilt of that first sin of our forefather. And as a result, none of us is capable of perfectly keeping God's law, his will. And if you here today are not spiritually united to Jesus by faith in him alone, the only thing that God's law is doing now is pronouncing God's judgment upon you and God's curse upon you for your, fail for your failure to perfectly measure up to that moral standard that is set forth in that law of God. You are condemned. You stand condemned by God through his law. And indeed, this is the only thing that that law of God is capable of doing for you right now on account of your sin. You have breached the law. You have broken God's law. It has to condemn you. You are under the law of sin. Paul speaks in verse 2 there. He says, for the law of the spirit of life uh, in Christ Jesus has set you free. There he was talking to the, uh, the uh, believer now who is in Christ, who is spiritually united to Christ. But prior to being spiritually united to Christ, which is those of you I'm talking to now who have not yet trusted in him, he says, um, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. But if you're not in Christ Jesus, you're under the law of sin and the law of death. The law of sin, the law of death is the power of de death and sin. Sin is your master, if you're not a Christian, and you are sin's slave, whether you realize it or not. You are a sin addict, as far as God, uh, your relationship to God, and there is nothing that you can do to overcome your addiction to rebellion against God, nothing. You can't do a thing. And you are also under the law or the power of death, as Paul says there in verse 2. Um, death is the curse God's law has brought upon you. Over in, back in chapter 7, it spoke of this fact in verses 9 and 10 of, of Romans chapter 7, where we read, Paul speaking here, he says, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, meaning when the law was brought to bear upon me and I realized, heard that law, uh, uh, its, command, its demands, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. 
And this commandment, verse 10, which was to result in life, notice that, was to result in life. That was the law, law keeping could bring life uh, before the fall. This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Like the ghost of Christmas future in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the law Uh, that ghost you recall, if you've seen it, uh, many of you have uh, in their childhood, if not recently, the, the ghost is menacingly pointing its bony finger at Ebenezer Scrooge's tombstone as Scrooge is standing next to him. And the ghost of Christmas future says to him, death. And the law says to you, if you're not in Christ, death. Your soul, according to the Bible, is already spiritually dead if you're not a Christian, united to Jesus by faith, and your body is slowly but surely heading for the grave. As we have already said, sinners by definition are incapable, incapable of measuring up to the stratospheric standard of God's holiness contained in his law. Once sin entered into the picture for mankind in the garden and throughout human history, the law utterly lost its ability, if you want to refer to it that way, the law utterly lost its ability when man became sinful. The law lost its ability to call forth righteousness from the hearts of sinful men. And the law also utterly lost its ability to serve as a means of meriting life, earning life for sinful men. Again, the only thing the law is able to do for a sinful person, which is all of us, if we don't have Christ, the only thing the law can do is condemn us to death and hell. So, I pose the question, how is it that some of us, by Paul's own words there in verse 1, how is it that some are no longer under the condemnation of God's law? If we're all sinners, every human being alive and it's ever lived except the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're all sinners, how is it that some are not condemned? That brings me to the second point. And that is, if you are spiritually united by faith to Jesus Christ, then you are no longer under the condemnation of God's holy law. The only way, the only way that a sinner can be freed from the condemnation of God's law and of God himself, of course, speaking through his law, is if God himself saves that sinner. which is exactly 
what God did for his people. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, save from hell and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, meaning the flesh of sinful men, God did. And what did he do? How did he do it? Sending his own son, divine son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as, a sin, uh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law, perfection, moral perfection, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who are in Christ Jesus, his law-keeping becomes our law-keeping. His obedience becomes our obedience. His, his uh, uh, payment for the debt of a sin becomes our payment for the debt of our sins. We who walk according to the flesh, but not according to the Spirit. God the Father, in that covenant of grace, sent His Son the second person of the Godhead, the Father, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father in the covenant of grace sent his divine Son as the second Adam, as the last Adam, to do what the law was incapable of doing for mankind, sinful mankind, and that is save. From condemnation, from death, and from hell. And he did this, God the Father did this by sending Jesus in sinful flesh? No. No, had, it been, had he sent Jesus in sinful flesh, Jesus' divine nature would have been united to sin, which is utterly impossible. No, what he did was he sent Jesus his son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but in its likeness. So if Jesus was sinless, and of course he was, uh, there's uh, gobs of New Testament data that makes that point. If Jesus was sinless, why did Paul use the term sinful to describe the flesh that Jesus came in the likeness of. Here's the reason. I'm quoting John Murray now, great Scottish um, Presbyterian of uh, the 19th century, 20th century, excuse me. And Murray said this, he wanted to show, that is God, wanted to show that when, or Paul rather, he wanted to show that when the Father sent the Son into this world of sin, of misery and of death, he sent him in a manner that brought him, Jesus, into the closest relation to sinful humanity that it was possible for him to come without becoming himself sinful. It's, in other words, Paul wants us to, wants to be sure that we understand that it was in the very same nature, human nature, which for all of us is fallen, 
and sinful. It's in that very same nature, which is otherwise dominated by sin in the rest of us, that God, through Jesus, punished the sins of his people. A human being was punished for your sins and mine, who also happened to be God, the Son. But he was perfectly and completely human, just like us, save the sinfulness that we have. And by undergoing the punishment for sin that God's law calls for, Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully satisfied the law's holy and just demands for punishment of sin. The law demands physical and spiritual death as a result of sin. Jesus endured both physical and spiritual death. He went to hell on the cross, if you will. He experienced hell. Hell is merely the place where God's uh, infinite justice is meted out. And God's infinite justice was meted out upon Christ as he hung on that tree. And all those sinners who are spiritually united to that sin bearer, the only mediator between God and sinful men, all those who are spiritually united to Jesus by faith have satisfied the requirements of the law in him vicariously as a result of our spiritual union with him. That's what law, verse 4 is saying. Let me back up again to verse 3 and, and then listen especially to verse 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in other words, in human flesh of Christ Jesus, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Believers in Christ who are in union spiritually with Christ by faith. And so when a sinner puts his complete and sole trust in Jesus Christ as his only hope of being forgiven and escaping the hell that he deserves, the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, sets him free from the power of sin and death and hell, which is what verse 2 says. So, you know the question I'm going to ask. Where do you stand? Do you have Jesus as your only hope of being forgiven by God in this life and escaping the terrors of hell in the next? Is he your only hope? Or are you trusting in him and a few other things as well? If you're trusting in a couple of other things in addition to Jesus, the fact that you've been a pretty good person, the fact that you obey your parents much of the time, and that somehow that's going to count when you're uh, before the bar of divine justice, you don't have Jesus. 
you have only your paltry attempts at good deeds, which are utterly vile to God. No, Jesus alone, who is man and God, the God-man, 100% God and man, he alone can save you. He alone can save you. And you have to, you have to cling to him alone. If you are doing that, you, I was going to almost say, you have my permission to jump up and down in your pew right now, but you don't. Um, but you should be in your heart. Because God alone did that in your heart. But if you're not, if you can't say yes to that question or I'm not sure, you need to get right with God right now. You need to flee to Jesus Christ. You need to renounce your supposed efforts at earning God's favor, your good works or whatever, and realize that they're trash as far as their value at getting you pleasing God. And you need to go to Christ and say, Jesus, only you can save me. Save me. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for this gospel truth that we've just heard. How grateful we are that you would take our place. That you, Lord Jesus, would live a perfectly holy, righteous, law-keeping life, your own law, and keeping it in this sin-cursed, vile world of ours. You came and you did that as others mocked you and made fun of you and refused to believe you. And then... You took the debt that we owed, an infinite debt to divine justice, and you absorbed an eternity's worth of infinite wrath in hell that belonged to us, and you took it. Why you would do such a thing is beyond us. but we thank you. And Lord, we ask that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you savingly, have mercy. We pray on him. Amen. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.